Section 3 of Enquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Henry Rosales. Enquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2, by William Godwin. Chapter 3. Private Life of a Prince Principles by which he is influenced, irresponsibility, impatience of control, habits of dissipation, ignorance, dislike of truth, dislike of justice, pitiable situation of princes. Such is the culture. The fruit that it produces may easily be conjectured. The fashion which is given to the mind in youth, it ordinarily retains in age, and it is with ordinary cases only that the present argument is concerned. If there have been kings, as there have been some other men, and the forming of whom particular have outweighed general causes, the recollection of such exceptions has little to do with the question. Whether monarchy be, generally speaking, a benefit or an evil, nature has no particular mold in which she forms the intellects of princes. Monarchy is certainly not jure divino, and of consequence, whatever system we may adopt upon the subject of natural talents, the ordinary rate of kings will possesses at best, but the ordinary rate of human understanding. In what has been said, and in what remains to say, we are not to fix our minds upon prodigies, but to think of the species as it is usually found. But, though education for the most part determines the character of the future man, it may not be useless to follow the disquisition a little further. Education, in one sense, is the affair of youth, but, in a stricter and more accurate sense, the education of an intellectual being can terminate only with his life. Every incident that befalls us is the parent of a sentiment, and either confirms or counteracts the preconceptions of the mind. Now the causes that acted upon kings in their minority continue to act upon them in their maturer years. Everything is carefully kept out of sight that may remind them they are men. Every means is employed which may persuade them that they are a different species of being and subject to different laws of existence. A king, such at least, is a maxim of absolute monarchies. Though obliged by a rigid system of duties, is accountable for his discharge of those duties only to God. That is, exposed to a hundredfold more seduction than ordinary men. He has not, like them, the checks of a visible constitution of things perpetually, though the medium of senses make their way to the mind. He is taught to believe himself superior to the restraints that bind ordinary men, and subject to the rule particularly his own. Everything is trusted to the motives of an invisible world, which, whatever may be the estimate to which they are entitled in the view of philosophy, mankind are not now to learn, are weakly felt by those who are emerged in splendor or affairs, and have little chance of success in contending with the impressions of sense and the allurements of visible objects. It is a maxim generally received in the world that every king is a despot in his heart, and the maxim can seldom fail to be verified in the experiment. A limited monarch and an absolute monarch, though in many respects different, approach in more points than they are separate. A monarch strictly without limitations is perhaps a phenomenon that never yet exists. All countries have possessed some check upon despotism, which, to their deluded imaginations, 
appeared a sufficient security for their independence. All kings have possessed such a portion of luxury and ease, have been so far surrounded with servility and falsehood, and to such a degree exempt from personal responsibility, as to destroy the nature and wholesome complexion of the human mind. Being placed so high, they find but one step between them and the summit of social authority, and they cannot but eagerly desire to pass that step. Having so frequent occasions of seeing their commands implicitly obeyed, having trained in so long a scene of adulation and servility, it is impossible they should not feel some indignation at the honest firmness that sets limits to their omnipotence. But to say that every king is a despot in his heart will presently be shown to be the same thing as to say that every king is, by unavoidable necessity, the enemy of the human race. The principal source of virtuous conduct is to recollect the absence. He that takes into his estimate present things alone will be the perpetual slave of sensuality and selfishness. He will have no principle by which to restrain appetite or to employ himself in just and benevolent pursuits. The cause of virtue and innocence, however urgent, will no longer cease to be heard, then it will be forgotten. Accordingly, nothing is found more favorable to the attainment of moral excellence than mediation, nothing more hostile than an uninterrupted succession of amusements. It would be absurd to expect from kings the recollection of virtue in exile or disgrace. It has generally been observed that even for the loss of flatterer or a favorite, they speedily console themselves. Image after image so speedily succeed in their sense room that no one leaves a durable impression. A circumstance which contributes to this moral insensibility is the effeminacy and cowardice which grow out of perpetual indulgence. Their minds irresistibly shrink from painful ideas, from motives that would awaken them to effort, and reflection that demands severity of disquisition. What situation can be more unfortunate than that of a stranger who cannot speak our language, knows nothing of our manners and customs, and enters into the busy scene of our affairs, without one friend to advise with or assist him? If anything is to be got by such a man, we may depend upon seeing him instantly surrounded with a group of thieves, sharpers, and extortioners. They will impose upon him the most incredible stories, will overreach him in every article of his necessity or commerce, and he will leave the country at last as unfriended and in as absolute ignorance as he entered it. Such a stranger is a king, but with this difference, that the foreigner, if he be a man of sagacity and penetration, may make his way through the crowd of intruders and discover a set of persons worthy of being his confidence, which can scarcely in any case happen to a king. He is surrounded with an atmosphere through which it is impossible for him to discover the true colors and figure of things. The persons that are near him are in a cabal and conspiracy of their own, and there is nothing about which they are more anxious than to keep truth from approaching him. The man who is not accessible to every comer, who delivers up his person into the custody of another, and may, for anything that he can tell, be precluded from that very intercourse and knowledge, it is most important for him to possess. Whatever name he may bear is in reality, a prisoner. Whatever the arbitrary institutions of men may pretend, the more powerful institutions of our nature forbid one man to transact the affairs and provide for the welfare of millions. A king soon finds the necessity of entrusting his functions to an administration of his servants. He acquires the habits of seeing with their eyes and acting with their hands. He finds the necessity of confiding implicitly in their fidelity. 
Like a man who long shut up in a dungeon, his organs are not strong enough to bear the irradiation of truth. Accustomed to receive information of the feelings and sentiments of mankind through the medium of another, he cannot bear directly to converse with business and affairs. Whoever would detach his confidence from his present favors and induce him to pass over again in scrutiny the principles and data which he has already adopted requires of him too painful a task. He hastens from his advisors to communicate the accusation to his favorite, and the tongue that has been accustomed to gain credit easily varnishes over this new discovery. He flies from uncertainty, anxiety, and doubt to his routine of amusements, or amusement presents itself, is important to be received, and presently obliterates the tale that overspreads his mind with melancholy and suspicion. Much has been said of intrigue and duplicity. They have been alleged to intrude themselves into the walks of commerce, to haunt the intercourse of men of letters, and to rend the petty concerns of a village with faction. But... Wherever else they may be strangers, in courts they undoubtedly find a congenial climate. The intrusive tale-bearer, who carries knowledge of the ear of kings, is, within that circle, an object of general abhorrence. The favorite marks him for his victim, and the inactive and impassioned temper of the monarch soon resigns him to the vindictive importunity of his adversary. It is in the contemplation of these circumstances that Fenelon has remarked, that kings are the most unfortunate and the most misled of all human beings but in reality were they in possession of pure sources of information it would be to little purpose royalty inevitably allies itself to vice virtue in proportion as it has been taken possession of any character is just consistent and sincere but kings, debauched from their birth and ruined from their situation, cannot endure an intercourse with these attributions. Sincerity that would tell them of their errors and remind them of their cowardice, justice that, uninfluenced by the trappings of majesty, would estimate the man at his true desert. Consistency that no temptation would induce to part with its integrity are odious and intolerable in their eyes. From such intruders, they hasten to men of applying character, who will flatter their mistakes put a varnish on their actions, and be visited by no scruples in assisting the indulgence of their appetites. There is scarcely in human nature an inflexibility that can resist perpetual flattery and compliance. The virtues that grow up among us are cultured in the open soil of equality, not in the artificial climate of greatness. We need the winds to harden as much as the heat to cherish us. Many a mind that promised well in its outset has been found incapable to stand the test of perpetual indulgence and ease, without one shock to waken and one calamity to stop it in its smooth career. Monarchy is, in reality, so unnatural an institution that mankind have at all times strongly suspected it was unfriendly to their happiness. The power of truth upon important topics is such that it may rather be said to be obscured than obliterated. And falsehood has scarcely ever been so successful as not to have a restless and powerful antagonist in the heart of its votaries. The man who with difficulty earns his scanty subsistence cannot behold the ostentatious splendor of a king without being visited by some sense of injustice. He inevitably questions, in his mind, the utility of an officer whose services are hired at so enormous a price. If he consider the subject with any degree of accuracy, he is led to perceive, and that with sufficient surprise, that a king is nothing more than a common mortal, exceeded by many and equaled by more, in every requisite of strength, capacity, and virtue. He feels, therefore, that nothing can be more groundless and unjust 
than the supposing that one such man as this is the fittest and most competent instrument for regulating the affairs of nations. These reflections are so unavoidable that kings themselves have often been aware of the danger to their imaginary happiness with which they are pregnant. They have sometimes been alarmed with the progress of thinking, and often regarded the ease and prosperity of their subjects as a source of terror and apprehension. They justly consider their functions as a sort of public exhibition, the success of which depends upon the credulity of the specters, and which good sense and courage would speedily bring to contempt. Hence the well-known maxims of monarchical government that ease is apparent of rebellion, and that it is necessary to keep the people in a state of poverty and endurance in order to render them submissive. Hence it has been the perpetual complaint of despotism that the rest of knaves are overrun with ease and plenty ever is a nurse of faction. Hence it has been the lessons perpetually read to monarchs. Render your subjects prosperous and they will speedily refuse to labor. They will become stubborn, proud, unsubmissive to the yoke and ripe for revolt. It is impotence and penury alone that will render them supple and prevent them from rebelling against the dictates of authority. It is a common and vulgar observation that the state of a king is greatly to be pitied. All the actions are hemmed in with anxiety and doubt. He cannot, like other men, indulge the gay and careless hilarity of his mind, but is obliged, if he be of an honest and conscientious disposition, to consider how necessary the time which he is thoughtlessly giving to amusement may be to the relief of a worthy and oppressed individual. How many might benefit in a thousand instances result from his interference? How many guileless and undesigning heart might be cheered by his justice? The conduct of kings is a subject for the severest criticism, which the nature of their situation disables them to encounter. A thousand things are done in their name in which they have no participation. A thousand stories are so disguised in their ear as to render the truth undiscoverable. And the king is the general scapegoat, loaded with the offenses of all his dependents. No picture can be more just, judicious, and humane than that which is thus exhibited. Why then should the advocates of anti-monarchal principles be considered as the enemies of kings? They would relieve them from a load would sink a navy, too much honor. They would exalt them to the happy and enviable condition of private individuals. In reality, nothing can be more iniquitous and cruel than to impose upon a man the unnatural office of a king. It is not less inequitable towards him that exercises it than towards them who are subject to it. Kings, if they understood their own interest, would be the first to espouse these principles, the most eager to listen to them, the most fervent in expressing their esteem of the men who undertake to impress upon their species this important truth. End of section 3. Recording by Henry Rosales at HenRMJ on Twitter.